How does a Christian sin? How does a Christian sin? Why is this important to understand this question? How does a Christian sin? Well, we are told that the nature and the importance of the law of God have been to a great extent lost sight of. A wrong conception of the character, the perpetuity, and the obligation of the divine law has led to errors in relation to what? Conversion and sanctification. <laughs> These are two critical areas of the Christian life. Conversion is where it starts and sanctification is where it grows and has resulted in lowering the standards of piety in the world. No, in the church. This is talking about our church. And then she doesn't stop here. She goes on, she says, here is to be found the secret of the lack of the spirit and power of God in the revivals of our time. Do you guys know why we are having a problem as a church with this revival and reformation thing? It's because we have lost sight of the uh, character, the perpetuity, and the obligation of God's divine law. And that's even though we are a people of the book, and we are a people who keep all Ten Commandments. And yet we're still lacking the spirit and power of God in the revivals of our time. So this is criti critically important information. How does a Christian sin? Where do you even start to answer a question like that? I mean, <laughs> what do you do? Where do you go? How does a Christian sin? In fact, this question is so difficult that I propose that we go to an easier question. Let's ask an easier question. Does a Christian sin? That's an easier question, right? There's only two answers. It's either yes or no, and we probably think we already know the answer. Of course Christians sin. We're, we all sin, right? We're all sinners. Does a Christian sin? The Bible says all have what? Sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all shortcomers when it comes to that. We're all failures when it comes to the glory of God. So yes, we sin. Uh, Solomon says, there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. That's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, you really can't get much clearer than that. Solomon says, nobody on this earth never sins. So let's just pack up our bags and go home, right? That's it. That's, well, there's some other Bible texts we should look at. The psalmist says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And it's true. Who could stand if God should mark our iniquities? None of us. Not one of us. We are sinners. Okay. But then Paul comes along and says, we don't have to sin. He says, no temptation has overtaken you, but uh, such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Okay. So we don't have to sin. But isn't that just the ideal? I mean, ideally, we wouldn't sin. We have a way out. We don't have to. But how does that work in practical Christian life? Is that just the ideal or is that the norm? Jesus proclaims, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the what? Okay, so are Christians slave to sin? Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Are Christians slaves to sin? Well, Paul says no. Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would what? No longer be slaves to sin. Paul says that God is going to give us the victory over sin. That our old self was crucified. That's the, that's the wonder and the power of surrender is that when our old self is crucified, we no longer are slaves to sin. But Jesus says everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So that seems to indicate that Christians don't sin. 
Well, let's go on. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, this is Peter now, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the life of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So we've seen several verses that seem to say that even Christians sin. But we've also seen several verses here that seem to say that Christians do not sin. Peter says they have ceased from sin. Well, let's look at some more passages of Scripture. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So <laughs> there's John, the beloved disciple, saying, hey, if you're saying that you have any sin, you're deceiving yourself, truth's not in you, so let's not do that, shall we? And it gets even worse. A couple of verses later, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. This is talking about God. No, we don't want to do that. And his word is not in us. So let's not do that. Let's admit that we are sinners, right? And move on. Except that that same beloved apostle John says this, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Wow, John, really? This is the same guy that just a minute ago said that if you say you're, you're, not with, you're without sin, that you're deceiving yourselves. And here he's saying no one who is born of God sins practices sin. But it gets even worse or even better, depending on how you look at it. Look at this. This is the same apostle. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Okay, does that make sense now? Everything's clear, right? Does a Christian sin? Yes, the Bible says we clearly do. No, the Bible says we clearly don't. And the Bible says we clearly do. So everything's clear now, right? Yes, okay, good. All right. Is there a contradiction in Scripture? No. If we, there appears to be a, a contradiction in Scripture, it's usually because we're not understanding something. Kids, if I told you that flowers grow best in sunshine, and then I said flowers grow best in shade, what would you think? Which one's true? Do they grow best in sunshine, or do they grow best in shade? Both. Both. See, we got a smart kid here. All right? Good. Yes, there are at least two types of flowers. Some flowers grow best in sunshine, and some flowers grow best in shade. It's the same way with the Christian life. There are at least two types of sin. And the Bible is talking about those two types of sin. There is a sense in which even the truly surrendered Christian sins. The Bible is clear about that. But there is also a type of sin in which the truly surrendered Christian does not sin. And we have to understand these two. It's critically important that we understand these two types of sin and so that we can uh, understand what God expects of us and what he is empowering us in the Christian life. So. Perhaps the best place to go to learn about these different types of sin is in the sanctuary service. The sanctuary service has so many beautiful things about the Christian life. Let's look at the sanctuary service and look at four different types of sin that the sanctuary service teaches us, and we can put it in this nice little table. In the rows, we have faithful sins and unfaithful sins. So there are people who are faithful who are sinning, and there are people who are unfaithful in sinning. In the columns, we have unintentional sin, and then we have intentional sin, two different types of sin. Those that people do unintentionally and those that they do intentionally. So those are the four types in that table. Let's look at these. 
First of all, in Leviticus chapter 4, we read about the faithful person who commits an unintentional sin. And the sacrifice for that is a female goat. This is what the Bible says. Now if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect for his sin which he has committed. So that's the first type of sin. The faithful person committing an unintentional sin. That is biblical. The second type of sin, oh, there's lots of places where you see the same type of unintentional sin. Uh, Leviticus 4.2, if a person sins unintentionally, when a leader sins and unintentionally, if a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally, if one person sins unintentionally, then you, you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. And Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This concept of unintentional sin is, is throughout Scripture. The second type of sin is the unfaithful unintentional. In other words, a person that is not faithful to God, not surrendered to Jesus, they commit an unintentional sin. And this type of sin is discussed in Leviticus chapter 5. And the, the sacrifice, notice, is, is higher now. It's not just the female goat, which is the cheapest sacrifice. Uh, this is the ram, which is more expensive. The Bible says if a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock. Okay, so that's the second type of sin. The third type of sin is the unfaithful person who commits an intentional sin. This is found in Leviticus chapter 6, and the, the sacrifice is restitution for the sin, because it's intentional. Whatever they did, they have to restore, and they also have to add a fifth to it, by the way, and a ram. So that sacrifice is even more expensive. The Bible says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him, or through robbery, or if he has extorted from his companion, these are all intentional sins, or has found what has, was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely, so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do, he shall make restitution for in full and add one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation for a guilt offering. So, those are the three types of sins we've seen so far. A faithful person committing an unintentional sin, an unfaithful person committing an unintentional sin, and an unfaithful person committing an intentional sin. Those are the three types we've seen so far. So, what do you think the fourth type of sin that the Bible talks about is. Defiant intentional sin. We find this one in Numbers chapter 15 and there's no sacrifice for it. Numbers says, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. For him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. This is in reference to the guy who was out on the Sabbath collecting wood for the fire, even though God had explicitly told them not to collect wood on the Sabbath. He was doing it not only intentionally, but defiantly. He was blaspheming God, saying, I am more important than God. My way is better. And that person and his family were stoned. That was a serious sin, defiant sin. That's the one that leads to the unpardonable sin, by the way. 
So those are the four types of sin that we learn about in the sacrificial service. Now, is anyone here wondering about that little blank spot in our table? Yeah. yeah, there's a little blank spot there. What about the faithful person who commits the intentional sin? It's not found in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about a faithful person committing an intentional sin. In fact, the Bible says exactly the opposite. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. This is the type of sin it's talking about, the intentional sin. It's an important distinction. We're going to look at that a little bit more. Let's look at unintentional sin a little bit. The Bible says that all unrighteousness is sin. Okay, do any of you have any unrighteousness in you? <laughs> right? <laughs> there is none righteous, not even one. So yes, we are sinners. Even the most fully surrendered Christian is a sinner because we still have unrighteousness in us. God is sanctifying it out of us, but we're not righteous yet. There is none righteous, not even one, and all unrighteousness and sin. So in that sense, yes, everyone, no matter who he is, Christian or non-Christian, is a sinner. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So we know that. We all have this, this deceitful heart, right? And then the Bible says, or then Ellen White says, we need to understand that imperfection of character is sin. So we all have imperfections in our character. We are not ready for translation yet. God is still working on our characters, each one of us. And we need to understand that imperfection of character is sin. So yes, my friends, all of us, no matter how close we are to the Lord, we are sinners standing in the need of grace. That's clear. The Bible teaches that very clearly. There are some things in the Christian life we can do. There are some things we can't. Do we have direct control over our characters? No. I know that I might have a pride problem. And so I say to myself, I'm going to be humble from now on. Does that work that way? Can I change my character that way? No, we cannot change our characters directly. We work with God to change them indirectly, absolutely. But we cannot change ourselves. Can a leopard change its spots? No. So notice in this next statement what we can and we cannot do. God has given us the power of choice. It is ours to what? Exercise. We want to grow that power of choice. We cannot change our hearts. We cannot control our thoughts, our impulses, our affections. See that? That's all true, isn't it? We cannot control these things. We cannot make ourselves pure, fit for God's service. But we can choose to serve God. We can give him our will. Then he will work in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Thus, our whole nature will be brought under the control of Christ. Isn't it wonderful that we have a power of choice, that we can choose God over ourselves? Isn't that wonderful? That is such a great blessing, such a privilege to give ourselves wholly to God. Speaking of unintentional sin, Ellen White says, there are those who have known the pardoning love of Christ and who really desire to be children of God, yet they realize that their character is what? Imperfect, yes, it's still imperfect. Their life, faulty. We shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes, but we are not to be discouraged. Isn't that encouraging? Yeah. We shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus, but he forgives us, and he lifts us up, and he encourages us. We are not to be discouraged. So there are three types of unintentional sin, three major types of unintentional sin. The first type is mistakes. Mistakes are bad choices that we make, and we don't realize they're bad when we make them. 
It's not until afterwards, oh my God, that was a bad mistake. That's a mistake. That was a bad choice. An uh, example of this is uh, Saul persecuting Christians. He thought he was doing God's will. He was persecuting God's people for God's sake. That was a mistake. He didn't know what he was doing. That was unintentional. Number two, the second type of unintentional sin are shortcomings. These are things that we want to be really good at, but we're not. You know, I want to love God with all of my heart and with all of my mind, with all of my soul and with all of my strength. I really do. But I'm not there yet. I wish I was. I'd love to be there. But I'm, a sh I'm definitely got the muscle problem when it comes to that. You know, and there's lots of things in my life where I'd really, really like to be able to be, you know, um, perfect. But I'm not. I have these shortcomings. So that's the second type of unintentional sin. The third type of unintentional sin are the character flaws. These are the impulses, the impulse of pride, the impulse of fear, the impulse of jealousy or anger, all these things that we don't want, that we hate, that we don't want to have anything to do with, but they come anyway. These impulses attack us whether we like it or not. So let's look a little bit now at the other sin, the other type of sin. We've been looking at unintentional sin. Let's look at intentional. Therefore, James says, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is what? Sin. This is the intentional sin. This is the bad one. Unfortunately, the Bible only has one word for sin, and yet there are several different types of sin that are referenced under that one type. So this is the intentional sin. Some of these intentional sins are starkly obvious. If you commit adultery, you can be pretty sure that you committed a sin, can't you? If you murder, you can be pretty sure that you committed a sin. If you dishonored your father and mother, if you broke the Sabbath, if you lied, you know that you've, you've committed an intentional sin, if you do it on purpose. But there are other times when the intentional sin is not quite so obvious. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said that looking at a woman lustfully was what? Intentional sin, adultery. And being angry with your brother was committing murder, right? So uh, was like committing murder. And even idolatry can be subtle sometimes. Anything we are told which tends to abate our love for God or to interfere with the service due him becomes thereby an idol. Wow. You know, idolatry is one of the Ten Commandments. And yet anything which tends to abate our love for God or to interfere with the service due him becomes thereby an idol. If we are intentionally hanging on to anything, that we know abates our love for God, makes it hard for us to enjoy him, to relish the subtle, simple pleasures of life. If we're hanging on to a worldly pleasure, we uh, thereby become an idolater. So it's, it's important to understand that it's not always easy to recognize these intentional sins. There's five things that we should know about intentional sins. The first one is unintentional sins can become intentional. In other words, let's say that I have a prideful thought. It's an impulse. I don't like it. I don't want it. I didn't ask for it. It came. That's unintentional at that point. But if we take that unintentional sin and we say, you know what? That's true. I deserve better than that. I should be treated better than that. You know, I'm better than this person. If we choose to take that thought and run with it, that becomes intentional. When our power of choice is involved, that unintentional impulse becomes an intentional sin. So it's very important that we understand that unintentional sins can become intentional. James says, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see that progression. 
that goes on there. The third thing that we should know about, um, the second thing we should know about intentional sin is that willful ignorance of God's will is intentional sin. Did you know that? We can't say, don't tell me what God wants because if, if you tell me, then I'll have to do it. You know, have you ever, ever thought that or ever said that? Um, shouldn't we rather be delighting in God's will? Shouldn't we be looking for everything we can about God's will, trying to understand God's will as perfectly as possible? Not just giving God our, you know, the, the least we can do, but giving him our best choices. You know, I remember a time in my life when I avoided the book, Councils on Diets and Foods, because I didn't want to know how bad my diet was. Have you ever been there? Have you ever done that? You know, do we sometimes avoid trying to know God's will? Why would we do that? That's actually intentional sin, trying to avoid knowing God's will. God has a, a, an awesome will, and it never hurts for us to know it as much as possible to know God's will and to, and to let him align us to that will. Those who have an opportunity to hear the truth and yet take no pains to hear or understand it, thinking that if they do not hear, they will not be accountable, will be judged guilty before God the same, Ellen White tells us as if they had heard and rejected. Wow, that's strong. There will be no excuse for those who choose to go in error when they might understand what is truth. In his sufferings and death, this is a great statement here, in his sufferings and death, Jesus has made atonement for all, what types of sin? The unintentional sins, right? The sins of ignorance. Jesus has made atonement in his sacrifice for those. That's wonderful news because those are the type we don't have any control over. But, she says, there is no provision made for willful blindness. The third thing that we should know about intentional sins is that Christ's robe of righteousness does not cover intentional sins. Paul clearly tells us, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Boy, I wish I had understood this when I was young. Kids, this is some important stuff. You can get this now. You will have 30-year advantage over me. If we go on sinning willfully, Paul tells us, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's that intentional sin. When we sin intentionally, we shrug off Christ's robe of righteousness. Christ's robe of righteousness covers all of us or none of us. You can't stick a foot out there and say, Lord, cover all of me but my foot because I want that sin. That's not how justification works. She goes on. While God can be just and yet justify the sinner through the merits of Christ, no man can cover his soul with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. It's those intentional sins, my friends, that get us. Those known duties or those known bad choices those are the ones that destroy us. Those are the ones that we have to avoid at all costs. She goes on. God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. And in order for a man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience through active living faith that works by love and purifies the soul. This continual obedience that she talks about, where does this come from? Is this from us? No, only God can do it, right? Self is the problem. The Holy Spirit is the solution. 
Surrender is the key because surrender lets the Holy Spirit have his way. The surrender lets God be almighty God in us. That's why it is the key to the Holy Spirit. So those are the first three things we should know. The fourth thing we should know is that there is no such thing as a little intentional sin. It is so easy for us as Seventh-day Adventists, as lukewarm Christians, to say, well, you know, it's not really that big of a deal. Besides, God isn't finished with me yet. Have you ever said that to yourself? My friends, I believe that statement is one of the most insidious statements in all of Christendom. You know, it's not really that big of a deal. And besides, God isn't finished with me yet. With that one statement, we have rationalized ourselves into lukewarmness, to Laodicea. We have lowered the standard of piety in the church, in our own lives. Because of that, there is no such thing as a little intentional sin. Chuck Yeager was flying an F-86 Sabre, that plane right there. He was a test pilot. His job was to put it through its paces. And he was flying it one day over a lake, and his friend lived on the lake, and he was going to show off. So he went real close to the surface of the lake, and he turned over upside down, and he was skimming that lake upside down. Man, not very many people could do that. That was pretty impressive. And then the aileron stuck. The aileron stuck. I don't know if you know about airplanes, but the ailerons what lets you come back over. <laughs> That's how you flip back over again. You can't do that without an aileron. So uh, it's stuck. He was just you know, a few feet from the water. What could he do? Well, he uh, didn't panic. That's why he's still alive after being a test pilot so long. He didn't panic. He let go of the G-forces a little bit, pulled up the stick a little bit, and um, it unlocked, and he flipped over and went up to altitude real quick because he was freaked out about that. But he's a test pilot. He, his job is to find these problems and to report them back to the engineers who will look them over. So he decided to do this test again, except this time he did it at 20,000 feet. He was going to be up there this time. He wasn't going to be over skimming the lake this time. He flipped over, did the same kind of a roll maneuver, and the aileron locked again. So now he has some data he could take back to the people back at base. So he uh, told them about what had happened. And they got their engineers together and says, what could cause this aileron lock when you have these G-forces like this? And they narrowed it down to a single bolt, a single bolt that was interfering with the aileron cable. And they went to the, to the factory where this airplane was made, and they found the guy who put that bolt into the airplane. That was his job. Only one guy did this. And they uh, watched him put the bolt into the airplane, and they said, that's upside down, you know. The manual says you need to have the up this way. And the guy says, yeah, I know what the manual says, but that's all hogwash. I know how a bolt goes in. A bolt's got to go with the head down, not the head up. It doesn't make any sense. I know how bolts go in. Nobody ever told him how many people he had killed because several pilots had died from that airplane because of that issue. Because he decided that he knew the best way to put that little tiny bolt in. My friends, it's the same way with the Christian life. We cannot give the devil the least little bit, not one little crack for him to slither through. There is no such thing as a little sin. <clears throat> the Bible says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Little things do matter. We, my friends, are by nature attracted to chosen sin. That's the bad news. But we have to do whatever it takes, and God is going to help us with this, to keep all those little chinks closed. Every act of life, however small, has its bearing for good or for evil. It is little things that do what? Test the character. It's little things that test the character. Do you know how God changes our character? He does it by testing it. 
If you want your character to grow, you're going to have to give him the little things. Every act of life, however small, has its bearing for good or for evil. It is the little things that test our character. The commission of a known sin silences the witnessing voice of the spirit and separates the soul from God. My friends, there is no such thing as a little sin. Little sins will destroy us. So that's the fourth thing we should know. The fifth thing that we should know about intentional sins is that God can give us consistent victory over intentional sins. My friends, this blew me away when I learned this. Really? God is promising continual victory over intentional sin. Now, that sounds impossible, doesn't it? And it is. This is a supernatural work that God does in our lives. This is the work of his Holy Spirit, giving us continual victory over intentional sins. The Bible says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will sometimes flee from you. <laughs> he will flee from you. Resist the devil, but you have to remember one thing. Before you resist the devil, you've got to do what? Submit, right? Submit therefore to God. If you're submitted to God, if you're consecrated wholly to him, if you've given him all your choices, then you can resist the devil and the devil will flee from you. For most of my life, I shared this with you before, for most of my life, I would try resisting the devil and the devil just laughed in my face and kept pounding away on me until he got through. I remember thinking, why do I even try? What was wrong? What was I missing? I was missing the submission. You can't have the devil fleeing without the submit part. It's so critically important. God promises us consistent victory over intentional sin. I love this statement right here. Feeling the terrible power of temptation, the drawing of desire that leads to indulgence. Many a man cries in despair, I cannot resist evil. Tell him that he can, that he must resist. He may have been overcome over again and again, but it need not be always thus. He is weak in moral power, controlled by the habits of a life of sin. His promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. That sounds like my life most of my life. My resolutions, man, I, I made a Sabbath morning resolution. By Sabbath evening, my resolution was gone. It was like ropes of sand. She goes on. The knowledge of his broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens his confidence in his own sincerity and causes him to feel that God cannot accept him or work with his efforts. But he need not despair. This is an incredible statement. Those who put their trust in Christ are not to be enslaved by any hereditary or cultivated habit or tendency. You cannot get more clearer than that. Those who put their trust in Christ, this is talking about surrender. This is talking about wholehearted consecration to God. Those who put their trust in Christ are not to be enslaved by any hereditary or cultivated habit or tendency. My friends, I don't know about you, but that is great news. We don't have to be slaves to sin. Like Peter said, we can have our flesh crucified in Christ so it's no longer we who lives and we can be free from that sin, that self. Do not think, she goes on, that God will work a miracle to save those weak souls who cherish evil, who practice sin, or that some supernatural element will be brought into their lives, lifting them out of self into a higher sphere where it will be a comparatively easy work without any special effort, any special fighting, without any crucifixion of self, because all who dally on Satan's ground for this to be done will perish with the evildoers. 
My friends, many people think that it's normal for a Christian to sin, intentionally even. If you had asked me for most of my life, I thought I was a better than average Christian. And yet I was intentionally sinning and I thought it was normal. I knew that was a bad choice. I did it anyway. Ah, it's just a little thing. Besides, God hasn't finished with me yet. And for the first 40 years of my life, I was a slave to the devil because I did not understand the power of wholehearted consecration to Jesus, of submitting myself fully to him. I once uh, had a friend who posted on Facebook that falling is not failing. And she told about how she had just fallen again. She always falls. She keeps falling. But she praised God for, for picking her up out of the mud. And that was a wonderful story, you know, because God does pick us out of the mud, doesn't he? No matter how often we fall or how low we fall or how intentionally or unintentionally we sin, God does forgive us and he does pick us up out of the mud. But my friends, in the Christian life, in the fully submitted life, falling is failing. Because falling is not God's plan. It's not God's will. It's not the norm for a wholly sur surrendered Christian. Falling is normal for a baby. But if your baby kept on falling after they got to be five and then six and then seven, wouldn't you start to get a little worried? Something's wrong with my baby. They're still falling. It's okay when they're learning to walk. Yes, we expect that. We smile. But if they're still falling when they get older, we start to be concerned. And it's the same way with us in the Christian life. My friends, instead of spending all of our time praising God for picking us up out of the mud, shouldn't we be spending that time praising God for keeping us out of the mud in the first place? That's what God wants to do. That's what God promises to do. That's what the surrendered life is all about, God keeping us out of the mud. He can do that by his supernatural power working in us. So does a Christian sin? We're back to our original question. We thought it was an easy answer. Now we've found it's a little bit harder. We also realized that in answering this question, does a Christian sin, our question was fundamentally flawed. We cannot ask just one question. We have to ask two questions. We have to ask, does a fully surrendered, Christ-focused Christian commit unintentional sin? Yes. yes, absolutely. The psalmist says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Right? And Solomon says, there's no one who doesn't sin. Right? Yes, absolutely. Fully surrendered, Christ-focused Christians do commit unintentional sin. The Bible is clear on that. The second question we should be asking is, does a fully surrendered, Christ-focused Christian commit intentional sin? And the answer is no. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. If we are committing intentional sin, things that we, choices that we know are wrong, then we are walking out of surrender. We are no longer abiding with Christ in the center of his will. That is not what it means to abide in Jesus. So, we've answered that seemingly easy question, and now that seemingly hard question, how does a Christian sin, all of a sudden becomes a lot easier. A Christian sins in two ways, unintentionally, less and less as God sanctifies us, right? We all sin unintentionally. We make mistakes, we have shortcomings, we have character flaws, but God is sanctifying us. He's reducing the amount of sin that we're doing. The amount of mistakes and the character flaws. He's sanctifying us. Praise the Lord for that. So how does the sin, how does the Christian sin intentionally? The answer is rarely. It is possible for a truly surrendered Christian to walk out of surrender. And I shared with my, my testimony with you last week about that, doing that exact that thing. It is possible for a truly surrendered Christian to walk out of that surrender relationship. But true surrender does not give itself up easily. 
True surrender is not one of those kind of things that you walk into on Sabbath morning and walk out on Sabbath night. That's not true surrender. True surrender is hard fought, hard won, and it sticks. It's a settled commitment. You don't often or easily walk out of surrender. It's rare. It happened to Elijah. I mean, Elijah, Elijah who called fire down from heaven, who stopped the rain for three and a half years by his prayers. Elijah ran from Jezebel, wanted to die in the desert. Yes, he had a surrender meltdown. Moses, when he struck the rock. Moses, the meek one who always followed God and whose face glowed because he was in the presence of God so much. Moses had a surrender meltdown, and he struck the rock. And in both of those stories, the, consecration, the consequences for their surrender meltdown was serious. Elijah lost his ministry. He was told to go get Elisha and to train him up as his successor at that point. Moses lost the promised land because of that surrender meltdown. Surrender meltdowns are not God's uh, desire. They're not the norm. They don't have to happen. And if they do happen, they're rare. Christ is our personal savior. And if we are his disciples, our wrongdoing will what? Cease. Unrighteousness will come to an end. To everyone who surrenders fully to God is given the privilege of living without sin in obedience to the law of heaven. And now I'm going to share with you my favorite quote, I think, from Ellen White. I think this is my favorite of all. And I love what she has to say on so many topics. But this, to me, is incredible. I love this thought. When the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new power takes possession of the new heart. A change is wrought which man can never accomplish for himself. It is a what? Supernatural work, bringing a supernatural element into human nature. The soul that is yielded to Christ becomes his own fortress. I love that thought. Which he holds in a revolted world, and he intends that no authority shall be known in it but his own. A soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. We are his own fortress. The soul kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. But, she goes on, unless we do yield ourselves to the control of Christ, we shall be dominated by the wicked one. That's just the way it is. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But if you don't submit, the devil's not going to flee. You are going to be dominated by the wicked one. My friends, I hope that this, this discussion about the different types of sin has been helpful. I hope that we now have a better picture of what the Christian life looks like in terms of sin. For a long time, I didn't understand this. I was committing known intentional sins and thought it was normal. And my life showed it. My life was a wreck spiritually. Even though I considered myself to be a better than average Christian, I was spiritually impoverished and slave to the devil. And then God got a hold of me through some very... Um, um, traumatic and, and uh, difficult means, he got a hold of me. And then he started teaching me about the Christian life. And one of the things, one of the, one of the most important things I believe he taught me was this. What does it look like for a Christian to walk with Jesus in terms of sin and sinning? My friends, we are all sinners. We all stand in the need of grace. But just because we are sinners 
does not mean we have to go on sinning. Does that make sense? Just because we are sinners does not mean we have to go on sinning. God is promising us, sinners, His Holy Spirit to come live and dwell in us and to give us victory, supernatural victory over known intentional sins in our lives. That, my friends, is fantastic news. And, and um, understanding that has transformed my Christian experience, that one thing. So I hope that that makes sense and that's a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the promise of victory over intentional sin. Thank you so much, Father, for the supernatural element that you put into our lives, the Holy Spirit who's living and dwelling in us and making us holy and who is helping us, Father, to both will and to do your good pleasure in everything all the time. Father, we cannot begin to thank you for all your goodness, for all your grace, for your awesome will. For this all, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.